Dear listeners, are you tired of the endless cycle of fad diets and extreme measures? It's time to wake up to a better weight loss solution with Robody. As someone who's been through the ups and downs of weight loss, I know firsthand the challenge of trying to find what will stick. That's why if I qualified for Robody today, I'd jump at the chance for a scientifically backed program that supports long-term success. With Robody, you'll gain access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market, paired with personalized lifestyle changes. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Row to help them lose weight. Say goodbye to the roller coaster of weight loss dreams and hello to sustainable, real results with Robody. Go to row.co slash snoozecast. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash snoozecast. from which the following is a brief account. 
La Perouse were sent by Louis XVI in 1785 on a voyage of circumnavigation. They embarked in the sloops of war, the compass, and the astrolabe, neither of which were as to the fate of these two sloops, manned two large cargo boats, the search and the hope, which left Brest the 28th of September under the command of Bruni d'Antricosto. Two months after, they learned from Bowen, commander of the Albemarle, that the debris of shipwrecked vessels had been seen on the coasts of New Georgia. But Don Tricusto, ignoring this communication, rather uncertain, besides, directed his course towards the Admiralty Islands, mentioned in a report of Captain Hunter's as being the place where La Perouse was wrecked. They sought in vain. The hope and the search passed before Vanicoro without stopping there. And in fact, this voyage was most disastrous. Don Tricasto, his life, and those of two of his lieutenants, besides several of his crew. Captain Dillon, a shrewd old Pacific sailor, was the first to find unmistakable traces of the wrecks. On the 15th of May, 1824, his vessel, the St. Patrick, passed close to Tecopia, one of the new Hebrides. There, Alaskar came alongside in a canoe, sold him the handle of a sword in silver that bore the print of characters engraved on the hilt. The Lascar pretended that six years before, during a stay at Vanicoro, he had seen two Europeans that belonged to some vessels that had run aground on the reefs some years ago. Dylan guessed that he meant La Perouse, whose disappearance had troubled the whole world. He tried to get on to Vanicoro, where, according to the Lascar, he would find numerous debris of the wreck, but winds and tides prevented him. Dylan returned to Calcutta. There, he interested the Asiatic Society and the Indian Company in his discovery. A vessel, to which he was given the name of the search, was put at his disposal, and he set out, 23rd of January, 1827, accompanied by a French agent. The search, after touching at several points in the Pacific, cast anchor before Vanicoro, the 7th of July, 1827, in that same harbor of Van Nau, where the Nautilus was at this time. There, it collected numerous relics of the wreck, iron utensils, anchors, pulley straps, swivel guns, an 18-pound shot, fragments of astronomical instruments, a piece of crown work, a bronze clock bearing this inscription, made by Bresson, the mark of the foundry of the arsenal at Brest about 1785,
there could be no further doubt. Dylan, having made all inquiries, stayed in the unlucky place till October. Then he quitted Vanacoro and directed his course toward New Zealand, dropped anchor into Calcutta, the 7th of April, 1828, and returned to France, where he was warmly welcomed by Charles X. But at the same time, without knowing Dylan's movements, Dumont d'Urville had already set out to find the scene of the wreck, and they had learned from a whaler that some metals and a cross of St. Louis had been found in the hands of some islanders of Louisiade and New Caledonia. Dumont d'Urville, commander of the Astrolabe, had then sailed, and two months after Dylan had left Vanicoro, he put into Albar town. There he learned the results of Dylan's inquiries and found that a certain James Hobbs second lieutenant of the Union of Calcutta, after landing on an island situated on 8 degrees 18 minutes south latitude and 156 degrees 30 minutes east longitude, I had seen some iron bars and red fabrics used by the natives of these parts. Dumont d'Urville, much perplexed and not knowing how to credit the reports of low-class journals, decided to follow Dylan's track. On the 10th of February, 1828, the astrolabe appeared off Tacopia and took as guide and interpreter a deserter found on the island, made his way to Vanicoro, sighted it on the 12th of February, lay among the reefs until the 14th, and not until the 20th did he cast anchor within the barrier in the harbor of Van Al. On the 23rd, several officers went round the island and brought back some unimportant trifles. The islanders, adopting a system of denials and evasions, refused to take them to the unlucky place. This ambiguous conduct led them to believe that they had ill-treated the castaways, and indeed they seemed to fear that Dumont d'Urville had come to avenge La Perouse and his unfortunate crew. However, on the 26th, appeased by some presence and understanding that they had no reprisals to fear, they led Monsieur Jacariot to the scene of the wreck. There, in three or four fathoms of water, between the reefs, lay anchors, cannons, pigs of lead and iron, embedded in the limey concretions. A large boat and the whaler, belonging to the astrolabe, were sent to this place, and not without some difficulty, their crews hauled up an anchor weighing 1,800 pounds, a brass gun, some pigs of iron, and two copper swivel guns. Dumont d'Urville, questioning the natives learned that La Perouse, after losing both his vessels on the reefs of the island, had constructed a smaller boat, only to be lost a second time, where no one knew. But the French government, fearing that Dumont d'Urville 
was not acquainted with Dylan's movements, had sent the sloop of war by Inez, commanded by Le Goron de Tromelin, to Vanacoro, which had been stationed on the west coast of America. The Bayanez cast her anchor before Vanacoro some months after the departure of the astrolabe, but found no new document, but stated that the islanders had respected the monument to La Perouse. That is the substance of what I told Captain Nemo. So, he said, no one knows now where the third vessel perished that was constructed by the castaways on the island of Vanacoro. No one knows. Captain Nemo said nothing, but signed to me to follow him into the large saloon. The Nautilus sank several yards below the waves and the panels were opened. I hastened to the aperture and under the crustaceans of coral, covered with fungi, coral, siphonula, madrepores, sea anemone, through myriads of charming fish, greenfish, damselfish, sweepers, snappers, rainbowfish, clownfish, and squirrelfish. I recognized a certain debris that the drags had not been able to tear up. Iron, stirrups, anchors, cannons, bullets, capstan fittings, the stem of a ship, all objects clearly proving the wreck of some vessel, and now carpeted with living flowers. While I was looking on this desolate scene, Captain Nemo said in a sad voice, Commander La Perouse set out 7th December, 1785, with his vessels, the compass, and the astrolabe. He first cast anchor at Botany Bay, visited the Friendly Isles, New Caledonia, then directed his course towards Santa Cruz, and put into Namuka, one of the Hapai group. Then his vessels struck on the unknown reefs of Vanacoro. The Busson, which went first, ran aground on the southerly coast. The astrolabe went to its help and ran aground too. The first vessel was destroyed almost immediately. The second, stranded under the wind, resisted some days. The islanders made the castaways welcome. They installed themselves in the island and constructed a smaller boat with the debris of the two large ones. Some sailors stayed willingly at Vanacoro. The others, weak and ill, set out with La Perouse. They directed their course towards the Solomon Islands, and there perished with everything on the westerly coast of the chief island of the group. Between Cape Deception and Cape Satisfaction. How do you know that? I asked. By this, 
that I found on the spot. Where was the last wreck? Captain Nemo showed me a tin plate box, stamped with the French arms and corroded by the salt water. He opened it, and I saw a bundle of papers, yellow, but still readable. They were the instructions of the naval minister to Commander La Perouse, annotated in the margin in Louis XVI's handwriting. Ah, said Captain Nemo, at last, a coral tomb makes a quiet grave, and I trust that I and my comrades will find no other. Chapter 19 Torres Straits During the night of the 27th or 28th of December, the Nautilus left the shores of Anacoro with great speed. Her course was southwesterly, and in three days she had gone over the 750 leagues that separated it from La Perouse's group and the southeast point, Papua. Early on the 1st of January, 1863, Conseil joined me on the platform. Monsieur. Will you permit me to wish you a happy new year? What? Conseil. Exactly as if I was in Paris? Well, I accept your good wishes, and thank you for them. Only, I will ask you what you mean by a happy new year under our circumstances. Do you mean the year that will bring us to the end of our imprisonment, or the year that sees us continue this strange voyage? Really, I, I do not have the answer. We are sure to see curious things, and for the last two months we have not had time for dullness. The last marvel is always the most astonishing, and if we continue this progression, I do not know how it will end. It is my opinion that we shall never again see the like. I think then, with no offense, that a happy new year would be one in which we could see everything. On 2nd of January, we had made 11,340 miles, or 5,250 French leagues since our starting point in the Japan Seas. Before the ship's head stretched the dangerous shores of the Coral Sea on the northeast coast of Australia, our boat lay along some miles from the redoubtable bank on which Cook's vessel was lost. 10th of June, 1770. The boat in which Cook was struck on a rock, and, if it did not sink, it was owing to a piece of coral that was broken by the shock and fixed itself in the broken keel. I had wished to visit the reef, 360 leagues long, against which the sea, always rough, broke with great violence, with a noise like thunder. But just then, the inclined planes drew the Nautilus down to a great depth, and I could see nothing of the high coral walls. I had to content myself with the different specimens of fish brought up by the nets, 
I remarked, among others. Some Germans, a species of mackerel as large as a tunny, with bluish sides and striped with transverse bands that disappear with the animal's life. These fish followed us in shoals and furnished us with very delicate food. We took also a large number of gilt heads, about one and a half inches long, tasting like dories, and flying pyrepeds like submarine swallows, which, in dark nights, light alternately the air and water with their phosphorescent light. Among the mollusks and zoophytes, I found in the meshes of the net several species of alcyonarians, echini, hammers, spurs, dials, surites, and high alii. The flora was represented by beautiful floating seaweeds, laminarii, and macrocystes, impregnated with the mucilage that transudes through their pores, and among which I gathered an admirable Nemostoma gelini roes that was classed among the natural curiosities of the museum. Two days after crossing the Coral Sea, the 4th of January, we sighted the Papuan coasts. On this occasion, Captain Nemo informed me that his intention was to get into the Indian Ocean by the Strait of Torres. His communication ended there. The Torres Straits are nearly 34 leagues wide, but they are obstructed by an innumerable quantity of islands, breakers, and rocks that makes its navigation almost impracticable, so that Captain Nemo took all needful precautions to cross them. The Nautilus, floating betwixt wind and water, went at a moderate pace. Her screw, like a cetacean's tail, beat the waves slowly. Profiting by this, I and my two companions went up onto the deserted platform. Before us was the steerman's cage, and I expected that Captain Nemo was there directing the course of the Nautilus. I had before me the excellent charts of the Straits of Torres, and I consulted them attentively. Round the Nautilus, the sea dashed furiously. The course of the waves that went from southeast to northwest at the rate of two and a half miles broke on the coral that showed itself here and there. This is a bad sea, remarked Ned Land. Detestable indeed, and one that does not suit a boat like the Nautilus. The captain must be very sure of his route, for I see there pieces of coral that would do for its keel if only touch them slightly. Indeed, the situation was dangerous, but the Nautilus seemed to slide like magic off these rocks. It did not follow the roots of the astrolabe and the zeli exactly, for they proved fatal 
to the Mont d'Urville. It bore more northwards, coasted the islands of Murray, and came back to the southwest towards Cumberland Passage. I thought it was going to pass it by when, going back to northwest, it went through a large quantity of islands toward the island Sound and Canal Malves. I wondered if Captain Nemo, foolishly imprudent, would steer his vessel into that pass where Dumont d'Urville, two corvettes touched, when, swerving again and cutting straight through to the west, he steered for the island of Gilboa. It was then three in the afternoon. The tide began to recede, being quite full. The Nautilus approached the island that I still saw with its remarkable border of screw pines. He stood off it at about two miles distant. Suddenly a shock overthrew me. The Nautilus just touched a rock and stayed immovable, laying lightly to port side. When I rose, I perceived Captain Nemo and his lieutenant on the platform. They were examining the situation of the vessel and exchanging words in their incomprehensible dialect. She was situated thus, two miles on the starboard side, appeared Gilboa, stretching from north to west like an immense arm. Towards the south and east, some coral showed itself, left by the ebb. We had run aground, and in one of those seas where the tides are middling, a sorry matter for the floating of the Nautilus. However, the vessel had not suffered, for her keel was solidly joined. But if she could neither glide off nor move, she ran the risk of being forever fastened to these rocks, and then Captain Nemo's submarine vessel would be done for. I was reflecting thus when the captain, cool and calm, always master of himself, approached me. An accident? I asked. No, an incident. But an incident that will oblige you perhaps to become an inhabitant of this land from which you flee? Captain Nemo looked at me curiously and made a negative gesture, as much as to say that nothing would force him to set foot on terra firma again. Then he said, Besides, Monsieur Aranax, the Nautilus is not lost. It will carry you yet into the midst of the marvels of the ocean. Our voyage is only begun, and I do not wish to be deprived so soon of the honor of your company. However, Captain Nemo, I replied, without noticing the ironical turn of his phrase, the Nautilus ran aground in open sea, 
Now the tides are not strong in the Pacific, and if you cannot lighten the Nautilus, I do not see how it will be reinflated. The tides are not strong in the Pacific. You are right there, Professor. But in Torres Straits, one finds still a difference of a yard and a half between the level of high and low seas. Today is the 4th of January, and in five days the moon will be full. Now, I shall be very much astonished if that satellite does not raise these masses of water sufficiently and render me a service that I should be indebted to her for. Having said this, Captain Nemo, followed by his lieutenant, redescended to the interior of the Nautilus. As to the vessel, it moved not, and was immovable, as if the coralline polypi had already walled it up with their indestructible cement. Well, sir, said Nutland, who came up to me after the departure of the captain. Well, friend, Ned, we will wait patiently for the tide on the ninth instant, for it appears that the moon will have the goodness to put it off again. Really? Really? And this captain is not going to cast anchor at all since the tide will suffice? said Conseil, simply. The Canadian looked at Conseil, then shrugged his shoulders. Sir, you may believe me when I tell you that this piece of iron will navigate neither on nor under the sea again. It is only fit to be sold for its weight. I think, therefore, that the time has come to part company with Captain Nemo. Friend Ned, I do not despair of this stout Nautilus as you do. And in four days, we shall know what to hold to. Besides, flight might be possible if we were in sight of the English or provincial coast. But on the Papuan shores, it is another thing, and it will be time enough to come to that extremity if the Nautilus does not recover itself again, which I will look upon as a grave event. But do they know, at least, how to act circumspectly? There is an island. On that island there are trees. Under those trees, terrestrial animals bears of cutlets and roast beef, to which I would willingly give a trial. In this friend Ned is right, said Conseil, and I agree with him. Could you not obtain permission from his friend, Captain Nemo, to put us on land, if only so as not to lose the habit of treading on the solid parts of our planet? I can ask him, but he will refuse. Will you risk it? Asked Conseil, 
and we shall know how to rely upon the captain's amiability. To my great surprise, Captain Nemo gave me the permission I asked for, and he gave it very agreeably, without even exacting from me a promise to return to the vessel. But flight across New Guinea might be very perilous, and I should not have counseled that land to attempt it.